0: Welcome to Gratitude and Leadership. I'm co-host Kami and today you'll hear from my dear old friend, Tara Levine. Tara's a self-actualization coach, lawyer, philosophical thinker, and founder of Talia's team. Today, she's gonna walk us through her journey into personal growth and why she founded her nonprofit organization. You know, leaders are from all walks of life and we all have a different perspective to share. And Tara is just such a ray of light and positive energy. I know you'll walk away from this episode with a little more gratitude and love in your hearts. So thank you so much for joining us today. We're so, so glad you're here.
1: She's a mom of two beautiful boys, a bonus mom to an adult and retired military spouse married 16 years and many more graduated with a law degree. She's a non-practicing attorney working in risk advisement for collateral REO properties. She's building a coaching business. She's a mad lover of life and this beautiful gift of the human experience.
2: Tara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Hillary, for having me. It's an honor to be here with you.
1: Yes, and you know Kimi very well because the two of you go back at least a decade. That's right. Two.
0: I mean, let's not age us that far, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa now. <laughs> Okay. We Tara, do have
1: some history. Yes. I love that we're both military spouses too, because I feel like we can just jump right in and we have this intimate connection. Yeah, we ha- It's like a subculture within being an American. And then there's a the subculture of also being an air force spouse. Like I did, you met your husband while he was stationed at McConnell. How did you guys meet?
2: Oh, that's such a beautiful story. And I'm sure that Kimmy can definitely appreciate that as well. We actually met at Emerson Biggins. He came in with all of his Air Force guys, and they were kind of hitting on us girls. And I was like, I'm not really interested. But long story short, it was during the overnight baseball tournament that they do there in Wichita. And you guys correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember what it's called. But it's kind of this overnight tournament that they do at the stadium. And so we ended up going there and exchanging numbers and throwing. The rest is history the rest
1: is history i love it how long did you date before you got married gosh we
2: were maybe 5 months before we got married very yeah. quick yeah.
1: <laughs> i know i love it now you live in texas now and you're putting down roots in texas and yeah. where else have you been stationed and what is the gift of being allowed to move forced to move frequently given you
2: yeah no that's a really great question i will say that It definitely has its perks being a military spouse, you get the opportunity of kind of going and seeing different places, living in different um, communities, being a part of different cultures, but no matter where you go, that camaraderie and that um, Air Force love is universal. So no matter which base you go to, you've got that those relationships, those spouses, people that you can connect with. But it's also something about being in different communities and different spaces where you kind of have to be willing to adapt, can't hold on to any preconceived notions, or you can't hold on to any mindset cultures, you have to be willing to be flexible and adapt to various different areas. Because I mean, you know, just as well as I do, the North is different than the South, and the East is very different than the West. And so you got to be willing to kind of be moldable and to grow into those new environments and those new cultures.
1: Where all have you guys been stationed just for frame of reference, but I have as you probably do a ton of military spouse friends. And the first thing we want to know is like, tell me where you? You've been because maybe we've (laughs) crossed that.
2: Yes, absolutely. And then we like to also talk about the different benefits and the different pros and cons of each military base as well. And so we've only been to a couple, actually. We've been at Offit, which is in um, South of Omaha, which is in Nebraska, which wasn't too much of a culture shock for us. But then we moved to Fairchild, which is in Washington State, which is in a very small town called Spokane. And that was a big culture shock for us because I'm biracial, my husband's white, and we were in an area where I was maybe one of a minority in the entire town. And so it was very overwhelming. It was something that had us um, kind of, take a look at our circumstances and our environment and make sure that we adjusted in accordance with that.
1: What do you mean? Tell me because I I think that from a white woman perspective, I can read between the lines and I don't want to read between the lines if you're open to sharing. Sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. For me, I was very naive because I grew up in Wichita, Kansas. And you know, there's black successful females everywhere. There are minorities in the legal field. And so I was very fortunate of seen diverse people in all kinds of different professions. I knew that, you know, black women could be doctors, they could be lawyers, they could be dentists, they could be all kinds of different things. Supreme
1: Court justices. Yes, absolutely.
2: <laughs> Vice presidents as well. So I, yes. I needed that. And so when I went to Washington in Spokane, I was in this kind of culturally shocked environment, because I was often accused of stealing, I was followed in a hobby lobby. And with my proud Seton Hall law school shirt on and sweatpants. And I was accused of, of stealing in the store. And I realized in that moment, which was a profound moment for me is that even though I know that there's diversity and positions of power throughout the United States of America, some people are stuck in a mindset to where people like me don't necessarily exist. And so therefore, I may be treated like I'm a criminal or a thief or anything like that. And I have to be willing to understand that lens that people see through. And what did that do for you? How long were you (laughs) guys stationed there? We were there for three years. That rocked my world, Hillary, to be honest with you. It sent me through a spiral of just confusion and sadness and heartbreak because I didn't understand what was happening to me, but it brought me through to some growth to understand that there's nothing that I can do about that. I have to just accept a harsh reality that's within our nation and just find compassion to understand that I'm very fortunate to know that people like me Exists And there's people like me that are walking this planet. And it's it's okay. And I don't have to be angry, because that's one thing I definitely didn't want to do is be angry. I don't have to be angry. I don't have to meet those people that see me and see me as non existent with criticism, I can meet them with compassion. And I can say, you know, I'm so sorry that you haven't had an opportunity to see um, people of diverse backgrounds and diverse perspectives as equal people, as humans. And I really am sorry for you to feel like you have some superiority where you can mistreat people like that. And so it it was a really eye-opening experience for me, but it brought me out in a way that I'm so grateful for. It's
1: so interesting that you grew up in Wichita and and I didn't grow up in Wichita. I grew up in South Haven and in Wellington, and there's not a lot of diversity in either of those little towns. So I don't recall really any racism, but I also don't recall any other people from other their cultural backgrounds or different races being part of my young experience. I remember being a little bit obsessed with the American Girl Doll series because I finally got to tap into other cultures. I mean, we lived out in the middle of nowhere. You had to drive 30 minutes to town to get a gallon of milk. People think I'm joking when I say that I grew up in the middle of a field, but I I really did grow up in the middle of a field. (laughs) So it's so interesting that you you felt like you had such a diverse or at least an accurately represented representative upbringing in Wichita and that you moved to Washington state. And (laughs) my experience would have been the opposite where I was like, Oh, I was just all the white people in, in Southern Kansas, I guess is really what in rural, very rural Kansas. And then I had to move to Phoenix to feel like I, I had some diversity. So it's funny how the air force takes us in lots of different places. And sometimes you're surprised with what you might find.
2: Yeah. And I think that that was another piece of it that in the air force, right. And when you get in the spouses groups, you see all kinds of diversity. And I think that being exposed to the United States Air Force and being that military spouse and going to all these different functions, seeing so much beautiful diversity, I just assumed that that was going to be the culture no matter where I went. And in Washington State, in Spokane specifically, I just wasn't met with that
1: reality. Yeah, I think that part of the reason I am who I am and do what I do is because I'm a military spouse. I became a military spouse when I was like 19, 20 years old, and that. Completely Completely shaped. I lovingly joke with my husband that once I realized that he was my ticket out of Kansas, I was like, <laughs> let's get married immediately. <laughs>
2: let's lock this down.
1: And in addition to him being like super dreamy and a lot of fun, he also he also was leaving the state and I was like, we should do this together. I love the military crowd because they've lived all over the world. And so they really appreciate it. And it's part of I'm sure why I became an immigration lawyer. Yeah, okay, I so that. that's this role. You've also got the mm-hmm. mom role. Role, but I'm really fascinated and want to. I read about this somewhat on your website, but I want to know more about Talia and why you founded Talia's
2: team. Thank you so much, Hillary, for that question. And I will be very transparent with the creation of this. And it, it kind of stemmed with my experience in Spokane. I realized that there is a gap in representation in the Black and Brown community. And I do feel like there is a limited. <laughs> (laughs) availability or access to seeing those powerful women in executive leadership role in entrepreneurship, thriving and creating successful businesses that are representation of the black and brown community. And so what prompted me to create this is that I have a smaller sister, her name is Talia, I mean, younger, she passed away at the age of 30. And during the time in which she passed, she was struggling with depression, and she was just struggling with trying to find her identity, which I believe a lot of young girls go through that process, whether you're black, brown, purple, whatever the case may be, a lot of young girls struggle with that transition period from high school into college, and they struggle with trying to find their identity. And the system that America has created for us has said, when you get out of high school, you need to go to college, you need to find what you want to do at that point in your life, you need to commit to four years. Years of doing that, then you need to go out into the workforce and you need to be in that same job until you die or until you retire, whichever one comes first. And I felt (laughs) and I just felt like, what are we doing to our young ladies setting them up with this very narrow lens and this pathway that they're expected to walk through when they're just trying to figure out themselves? They're trying to figure out who am I? I'm I'm no longer in my parents' household anymore. I'm now trying trying to find my identity as a woman, I should be free to make these choices, whichever way I choose. If I want to go to college, great. If I want to take a gap year and take a year off, that's perfectly fine too. And I felt like there wasn't enough support systems available for young girls to know that they had that option and they had that choice. And so I created Talia's team with the thought of my sister in mind. And I know that she struggled with finding her identity and she um, had an accidental overdose. She mixed a narcotic with alcohol, which is a big, big no-no, and it took her life. And so I felt like I had to do something. And I had a fire lit within me that said, I've got to do something about just this depression that these young girls find themselves in. And so I have 12 mentors right now, and they range all in diversity, all in different professions. I have a cybersecurity specialist. I have a dentist. I have a doctor. I have a nurse. I have an attorney. I have all kinds of different women, entrepreneurs. I have another lady that is a cosmetologist. So they range in all different areas to help put those young ladies in connection with those executive women that they can say, hey, tell me the truth. Tell me the pretty and the ugly about the profession that you're in. And then it's also that regional support, right? Because there are areas where young ladies say, hey, I want to venture off to New York City. And I had this conversation with a coworker earlier today. The thought of venturing out to exploring that beautiful New York light, right? Those New York City lights. And you're like, but hey, I don't I don't really know anyone there. I don't know how to get started. We can put you in contact with someone in that area that says, Hey, we have a mentor here that you can connect with that can maybe give you some pros and cons about living in Manhattan, living closer to the city. These are some things that you can expect. So that is why I created Talia's team. And it's something very close and very dear to me. I'm sorry about your sister. Thank you. Thank you for that.
1: That has to have been one of life's greatest rock bottom moments for you.
2: It definitely was. It taught me the truth about depression. It also taught me that there is suffering going on and recognizing those you know, mental health signs that people are struggling internally. And just because they wear a smile. And if you knew my sister, she was very bubbly, very outgoing. She always had a smile on her face and she just brushed whatever she was dealing with under the rug. And it helped me to take a pause and say, first that I need to check in with people on a reoccurring basis. And then also give them comfort to know it's okay to not be okay. Mm -hmm. We all go through challenges. And I'm here for you. And I love you.
1: And I support you no matter what. Yeah, it's fascinating, because and I've shared this with Kami, and not really, really anybody else. But about a month ago, I was diagnosed with depression. And so much of it started for me to really just the diagnosis alone made so much sense for me, because I, like your sister, am an outgoing person, on the surface, I don't have anything to be depressed about. Like, how dare I be depressed? How dare Mm -hmm. I be unhappy or sad with something that's going on in my life? I have, you know, I am Mm -hmm. so dang fortunate. And then you start to have that conversation with yourself. And it's very demoralizing to not only feel that way, but then to beat yourself up for feeling that way. But having the diagnosis alone really helped me say, okay, now I understand that it's not a matter of gut it out more, white knuckle it more, try harder harder. You're just ungrateful. And instead know that you, you just need different tools because the tools you're using, you know, this is a hammer. You need a screwdriver to help solve this and and alleviate this. And that's been very, very freeing. But yeah, I think that the face of depression, it's, we all want it to look like one thing, but it, it really doesn't. And then to have a conversation about it, you really don't know where to begin because everyone thinks that if you can't climb out of bed, then yes, you're depressed. But what about those of us who are really high achievers who are or high functioning or whatever we want to call it, who don't fit that mold. And yet we still feel this underlying sense of sadness. And, and why is that? You know, so I hear where you're coming from.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I really loved Hillary when you said that you're using a hammer when in reality you need a screwdriver, That metaphor definitely resonates with me. And I think that it's something to the level of understanding how depression can show up in our lives and not being ashamed of that and not feeling that shame and just saying, hey, I just need to shift course in a couple of things. Maybe I need to reassess my tools and that's okay. But as you know, know, our community and our society really scrutinizes those kinds of things as something that's wrong with you or something that you should feel shameful about. And in reality, it's just a part of the human experience. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it really is. I feel like the common thread with the work that you do is helping give people permission, you know, so if it's permission to take a gap year or permission to investigate or permission to go do this experience of living in New York or whatever it is, just empowering people to give themselves permission to be.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm kind of rebellious by nature. So anytime I can shift or provide a different perspective on the systems that have been kind of forced upon us, I'm all about that. I'm all about exploring what's right for you and um, figuring out what that roadmap looks like along the way, right? Like we don't have this manual that's giving to us when we get to adulthood, or even as parents having raising children, we don't get something that says, hey, this is what good looks like. The beauty of that is that we get to create that on our own. And just reminding people that even though we have these society pressures, these systems that have been built and formed for us that are forced upon us, we still have choice at the end of the day to pick out and to select what feels right for us. And I think where people get stuck is feeling like they don't have a choice.
1: Yeah, I think they do. Kamie, Yes. What are your thoughts, my dear?
0: Well, as I'm listening to you guys both describe your personal connections to depression, I actually felt very grateful because I have not had any personal connections. Well, I take that back. I had one, but it was a medication induced. It was a side effect of a medication I was taking. So I do feel like I have a a tiny bit of of what somebody might be going through. So I guess just a lot of gratitude for the way that my chemicals are balanced, I guess, is a a way to put it. For sure. For sure.
1: Tara, what are ways that people can get involved in supporting your organization and be either becoming a mentor or, you know, what is a commitment look like? Tell me more about what the process and the match and all of that process looks
2: like. Yeah. Thank you so much, Hillary, for that question. So a really good question. What we are doing right now is you can go to the website, which is talias.team. And this is a, it is a short link. I believe it's what it's called. They changed the terminology and technology on me all the time. But um, I believe it's just Talia's team and your URL, type that up and the page will pull right up. Um, And then you can request to be a mentor or a mentee. And what that process looks like is if you want to be a mentor, there are some background work that needs to be done. So we do require our mentors to go through a criminal background check. And so we do require that for them just to make sure that we're putting our mentees in the right hands with the right mentor. And so there is there is that requirement. Other than that, it's just your time commitment. And generally speaking, when we get a mentor that's interested based off of either A, your industry and the field work that you're doing, or B, your location, that's how we match our mentors with our excuse me, our mentees with our mentors. And we put them in connection with each other just based off of that, that field work and that and that background that that's collected. And then from there, it's up to the mentee and the mentors. What I have found in my research with kind of setting up this organization is the needs could vary. The mentee could really need someone, hey, I, I'm, I'm interested in exploring college options. We do have a college professor that is a mentor on our roster. And I just need some help filling out the college application process, I'm scared, I'm nervous, I need to know what my resources are. And so we put them in contact. And as you know, the application process for college is somewhat of a condensed time. So they may find that their relationship is only helpful during that application process. And from there, the mentee feels supported by the mentor, and then maybe they cease that relationship. Other things may be more long going. And we may find that a mentee really needs some support with the college choice that they've made. Maybe they decide they want to be a nurse, or maybe they decide they want to be a doctor. They need someone to hold their hand through that process. And then it also may just be life circumstances. After speaking with some of the mentees, they just... A lot of them struggled going through the pandemic. And a lot of them found themselves in very stressful situations because they just didn't have a desire to go to school. And they felt like that they want to just completely drop out because they're used to that classroom setting. And here they're being forced to do everything online and they can't get out of bed and they're struggling. And so trying to put them in contact with someone that's going to say, Hey, remember, this is your objective here. This is your goal. We got to get you through to graduation. Like, remember, you're this much closer. Let's not let this pandemic alter your course. You're this far ahead. Let's continue and just needing that support and that pep talk. So we are really there to support our mentees in whatever capacity that feels right for them. The mentors that do sign up for the program are aware that it is a commitment and it is a commitment based on what the mentee needs at that time. And for the most part, we've got a really excellent group of mentees or mentors that are willing to just kind of commit what they can at that time. If things change for their commitment levels, they do let me know and say, hey, Tara, I'm going to be out for you know four to six months. I had one mentor that was working on her real estate license. And she said, I can't devote that time right now to someone. So I'm going to need to sit out for a little bit. No problem at all.
1: I love it. I love it. When, when you think about mentoring and guidance, how does that impact the way that you mother? Oh, that is such a...
2: Question. You've got great questions and How I mentor as a mother. Well, I have two boys. So my parenting style is very much tailored towards each of their personality types and kind of as they grow and evolve into young boys, into young men, I have to evolve and grow with them because how I parent them as small children may not be the same type of parenting that they need as they become older young men. My 12-year-old just recently turned 12. He was 11 as of July 5th. He is interested in freedom and he feels like he needs his freedom. And so as a parent, you know, we definitely want to support that. And I think that where my desire for that kind of support is definitely derived from the mentorship program that that I have founded with Talia's team but I say okay you're ready for some freedom all right, what does this freedom look like for you? Does this freedom look like you get to stay up until 10 o'clock during the summer? Or, or what does this freedom look like? Explain this to me. And kind of allowing them to tell me what they feel like that they need in that moment to where they are feeling heard, they're feeling seen, and I'm validating the emotions that they're experiencing. And let's see what we can do to help make sure that you have that support. Um, one thing I've noticed also from the mentees is that when they turn 18, they're like, whoa, I'm free. Now I'm going to go and I'm just going to live this life. Instead. We've all felt it, right? right. We've all been there. <laughs>
0: That's right.
2: Some it's of like, those
1: decisions you can't take
2: back either. <laughs> I know. And you don't want anyone to know either. It's like secret going to the grave. <laughs> yes.
0: Thank God social media was not a thing. Right. Imagine? We might yeah. be dating myself here, but I'm very thankful for that. <laughs> yeah. My space was even like after I
2: was married. Like, yes. <laughs> right. Too bad Facebook doesn't let you put songs on your profile. I that know. Was the thing I with know. Mayspace. It would be really, would be really <laughs> a
1: throwback for sure. Colby <laughs> Kelly's book probably with like my song.
2: That is a great sound. It'd
0: be nice it too. Yeah. So um, I was
2: just, yeah. I was just saying, like for when you're 18, you know, I and I've learned from my mentors and my mentee that when we turn 18, we kind of we want that freedom. So we go wild and we're just like, yes, finally, I get to do what I want. I get to come and go as I please. I'm an adult now. And so I'm trying to give my children just a little dosage of that freedom. So by the time they hit 18, they're not craving it, right? They're not in this desperate need of all this freedom because, you know, growing up, they were in such strict household or, you know, they did everything that mom and dad told them. So I kind of take these little dosage that I've learned throughout working with the mentors and apply them to kind of how I parent. Yeah, I love it.
1: When you live in an America where it's so dangerous to be a black man, how does that shape the way that you know you exist because i can imagine right now your your boys are with you all the time but soon they're going to be out with their friends driving around and you know you've experienced being followed in a hobby lobby how does that shape the way you live now and raise your kids for when they're out doing their thing as young boys and young men.
2: Yeah, I think that I'm not more so worried about the way that they look because I'm biracial, my husband's white. So they are these beautiful golden boys. And so I'm not so much concerned and I'm so grateful that it's not something that I have to stay up at night thinking about. But I do get concerned from the perspective of boys being boys and them wanting to explore things in a way that they think is cool. And what I mean by that is that my kids are YouTubers, they like to watch YouTube, they find ridiculous things on YouTube, and they think it's funny to do certain things. Whereas I feel like there's a concern from a parent's perspective that although they're watching this on YouTube, and they think it's funny that there are other people in this world that would not find that kind of behavior to be comical and could threaten their safety. And so there are those things that I have to consider to make sure that they are in compliance with, you know, respecting other people's property, making sure they're behaving in a way that's a representation of our family and our values. But at the same time, and that's stifling them from being just boys, simple boys. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. that's something that I feel like I definitely have to pay attention to. Like with the the shooting in Texas, the school shooting here in Texas recently, that was a tough conversation to have to have and explain to my kids as well. Because they they love guns, they have toy nerf guns everywhere. My oldest son is brilliant when it comes to just understanding weapons like that. Guns, he knows every single facet, every everything about guns. And so, and it's always been something he's been interested in ever since he was a small child. And so with that being said, I have to have that conversation with him about why he can't walk outside uh, with his airsoft gun and, you know, pretend that he's, you know, shooting because it involves his safety now. Like society is on high alert with things like that. And yeah. we can't have you walking around doing things like that. And he's just a child. Like he doesn't, he's like, what do you mean? I it's just an airsoft gun. And I'm like, well, honey, we got to understand the world. And Mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of some of the conversations that that I have with him, and with them in regards to just the society and growing up now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I know that I can hear the wisdom coming through. Tell me about your experience going through the field graduate university where you got your evidence-based coaching certification.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, I am still in school. I'll be graduating here in August. Yeah. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. That has been a wonderful journey for me. It's been more of a personal development aspect rather than just another certificate or another degree to attain. It's been an opportunity to be in a cohort full of diverse people all over the nation, some in California, some in New York. So it's really great to just get together in this melting pot and talk about everybody's experience and being open to understanding different perspectives has been a really positive experience for me. But I've learned understanding people, the value Mm -hmm. of investing in people and making those meaningful connections has been my biggest takeaway through that experience.
1: Anytime someone someone's like, it's been a real personal development moment. I'm always like, Ooh, sorry. I know that those are painful.
2: <laughs> what, is,
1: what, has been your, what has been your personal development that you feel like has really grown out of this, you know, like through the, from the ashes we rise because that's personal development.
2: Yeah, absolutely. No, it's been definitely one of those things where I've had to sit back and reflect sometimes and say, Hmm, you know, am I attached to an outcome in this scenario? Or am I offended by something that someone says? because we've had, you know, heated conversation about race, about, you know, women's rights, about, you know, the Roe v. Wade overturn, and people have very conservative views. And so I have had to stop myself and say, Hey, it's okay for them to view that way. And it's okay for them to have that opinion doesn't necessarily mean I have to think badly of them or to perceive them in any way. They are who they are. And some people are incredibly conservative. That's okay. And it doesn't have to make sense to me because originally I would sit there and be like, that is a horrible person. Why do they think that the government has a right to women's choices? I I just can't believe that they think that way. And so it's been a mind opening experience for me because I'm like, Hey, now I'm like, it's okay. Like people are going to think whatever they want to think. And it's not up to me to uh, label or decide one way or the other. And that keeps me sane.
1: <laughs> one of our, one of our uh, guests on the podcast is Abby Medcalf and she's a, she's also my marriage counselor and she's awesome. And she describes it as you can see the tiger you can see the thing But you don't have to fix the tiger. You don't have to fix it. So in really it's just what you described at the beginning of our conversation, which was, you know, really having compassion for people. And Mm -hmm. when we have empathy or compassion for people, it's not that we think that they're right or wrong. We just see them and that they have feelings about this. So we can see the tiger, but we don't have to fix the tiger. And that really is a much happier place of existing than I think. What law school definitely taught me, probably taught you too, which yeah. is to find a position and defend it at any price.
2: <laughs> which is Absolutely. also fun when you're,
1: you know, in a in a relationship.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. And I've had to, Hillary, completely retrain my mindset because that is exactly the way that I have always been trained to find a position, defend your position poke holes in their argument, identify factually why they're completely inaccurate and you hang on to that until, you know, you get an outcome until the judge decides and then you, you move on to the next one
1: my husband will be like, there's no jury here. You can see no transcript. You're going to read back, you know, and I'm looking around like, I don't even realize that I'm doing it. And of course, in the moment, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but in reality, I'm like, oh yeah, that, that's right. There's, there's no one I'm on, uh, you know, we're not testifying here and I'm not cross-examining you and I'm not drilling you down to where you can only answer yes or no. <laughs> it is awful.
0: You know, it feels really empowering to be a woman in my late 30s (laughs) and know that I can see people and I can meet people where they are in their opinions and that I know in my opinions, I'm not going to change their mind and I don't have to change their mind. It's been really great to let go of I'm right and you're wrong. And here's why, Mm -hmm. Um, especially talking about Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the I thing love about that Ruby
1: Wade is I don't think there's a right or wrong. And the same with immigration. Like I, I often, and I mean, I definitely... I realize I'm like, Oh, I'm opening this door. The thing that makes any issue complicated is there's so much validity to both perspectives or all perspectives. And when people talk about undocumented immigrants in the United States and border security and all of these things, and like having a country that follows the rule of law and not wanting to grant amnesty to the 11 million undocumented or illegal immigrants. I never use that word, but other people do, you know, you can see where they're coming from and it's like yeah do you really want to do you really want to write a blank check well we had this law nobody nobody really followed it so what are we going to do now other than just to forgive it and what it gets down to for me is and I think this is like a M- Malcolm Gladwell thing what it gets down to for me is like, we cannot paint with such a broad brush that we talk in numbers, we have to talk in terms of actual humans. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about each individual human, that's where for me, we just the rubber meets the road and humanity is restored. And when I look at my clients, and I'm like, yeah, they entered the country, I don't, I mean, they had their reasons, but at the end of the day, like I look at their kids and the lives they've built. And I think about this one family. And if I think about, wow, what would it be like to grant amnesty for this one family, rather than looking at it, like, you know, 11 million families, it's a lot easier for me to digest and say, what is the America that, you know, my family has spent its, its legacy building and defending? What is that uh, America? want to stand up for, for this one family. And for me, that really helps distill it down into a digestible conversation where, yeah, we're both going to maybe disagree, but don't we love family in America? Don't I mean, I think that's like the one thing I'll
2: get behind, you know? Absolutely. I feel like too one struggle that I feel like we as human beings find ourselves in frequently is getting caught in that absolute space. Mm -hmm to where that it can only be one or the other, and it either has to be this way or it's wrong if it's that way. And I feel like there's so many chances and opportunities for us to play in the gray. And why can't we have, you know, one and the other? Why can't it be both of them combined collectively with a balanced approach? And so I, I I get that there is some concerns on both ends, but I think that there's always room to meet in the middle.
1: I love that, especially coming from a bright biracial woman, where you do probably yeah. have one foot in each cultural background. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. like there's never been a point in your life where there is an absolute bright line because you live
2: in the gray. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that that took me. That's a that's another discussion, but that definitely took me a long time to embrace. Therefore, a while I felt very unfortunate to be biracial. I felt like I should have just been one color rather than being both. And that was an identity struggle for me. But now, yeah, it's, it's it's like my motto. I encourage everyone to come, come play in the middle with me. Let's all yeah. live in the gray. And there's opportunity for both. And I feel like when people are so attached to one side or the other, they fail to see the value and benefit of the other side. And when you take all the good from both sides, that creates the beautiful balance and there's opportunity for both of those to coexist. And it's just a dangerous place to think in, in absolutes.
1: Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton's aide, And I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but I've been wanting to read her book. It's both and instead of either or, and she's like living in a world where I'm it's both of these things, not either of these things. And it's yeah. this and this, not this or that. And Really encouraging, kind of the same um, narrative that we're talking about right now, which is playing in the gray.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a great place to be in, and it offers so much freedom.
1: Freedom is my word. It's funny that it's your son's word too, but freedom is like my my word for my life. I even got it on my license plate. Like it's it's is my thing, mm-hmm. um, and it's what I is George is George Michael's song too. Your theme song? No, I don't <laughs> even know which song you're talking <laughs> about. But now I need to go look. Uh, freedom George Michael. I oh yeah, I do have a song. Freedom. Yes. The um, <laughs> the Aretha Franklin freedom is is more my jam. I don't know if that's like I just having grown up on that era of music, I think, but I think that freedom is something that is constantly expanding. Like we hit a new level of freedom, and then we see that there's all these other what what are maybe like Mirrors. We thought they were mirrors, but they're just more doors to the next level of freedom. And so much of that is unlocking what's within us. And so I I love that freedom is something that's coursing through your veins. It must be like, I feel like we need to chant USA, USA. (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) But I am so grateful to meet you, to know you. I'm so glad that you're in Texas where you're getting to share this share you with the great state of Texas. And I look forward to connecting with you someday when I'm down there, or we all, maybe when next time we're all in Wichita, we should go over to Emerson.
2: That <laughs> yes. sounds like a
1: beautiful plan. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and we'll be sure to post all of the links that we talked about in the show notes. Thank you again, Tara. Thank Thanks, you Tara. so much
2: for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you ladies.
1: Wow. Another great episode showing us that the way we view our past and existing experiences impacts the way we view our future and how we're living our lives and showing up. And it's just every single time it kind of blows my mind. Kami and I are on a mission to help spread this message of gratitude for the good times and the bad because they help us grow into greater leaders We would love for you to join with us in serving that mission by sending a text, if you could send a text to one friend right now and say, I think that you might enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for doing that. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. Because if we're just talking to our computer screen, we're not going to be sharing our message. We really appreciate that you are going to take part in this with us. And that's the greatest gift is really helping someone experience gratitude from the inside out. And that changes their life. Thank you for gifting that to a friend today. See you next week for another episode of The Grateful Leader.